You are listening to Shout for Libraries in Edmonton on CJSR. We're a group of library students at the University of Alberta who are raising awareness about topics such as censorship, freedom of expression, and social responsibility. My name is Julia. And I'm Marin, and we'll be your hosts for this half hour of library-centric radio. Woohoo! On each episode of Shout for Libraries, we explore a different issue in library and information studies. Today, we are taking a look at some of the issues surrounding preservation of memory institutions, like museums, archives, and libraries, in the aftermath of the fire that burned down the National Museum of Brazil. So, for those of you who hadn't heard, I know the noise coming from our neighbors to the south can make it hard to keep up with non-American news. The National Museum of Brazil and most of its 20 million artifacts were destroyed in a massive fire on September 2nd this year. The museum was founded almost exactly 200 years ago in 1818 by King Zhao VI of Portugal, Brazil, and the Algarves, and it was actually housed in a palace that was also lost in this fire. It was in fact the largest museum of natural history in all of Latin America. Some of the specific items which were destroyed include the 5 million butterflies and anthropods, frescoes from Pompeii, a 2,700-year-old Egyptian sarcophagus, a 3,500-year-old Chilean mummy, audio recordings of dead languages, and the oldest human remains in the Americas, along with all the data and most of the research on the artifacts. This loss has been described evocatively by Marina Silva of the Brazilian Sustainability Party as a national lobotomy. You know it's going to be a fun episode when the phrase national lobotomy comes up in the introduction. The fire alone is not quite the point of the story. The full tragedy can only be appreciated when you learn that the annihilation of a country's history was fully preventable. According to The Atlantic, the building had never been completely renovated in its 200-year history. It had long suffered from obvious infrastructure problems, including leaks, termite infestations, and crucially, no working sprinkler system. Over the past five years, the museum faced severe budget cuts and didn't even receive its full allotted funds from the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. It was recently forced to crowdfund money to repair the termite-damaged base of one of its mounted dinosaurs. In an article titled Funding Neglect Kills Museums, Dr. Buckley, the curator and collections manager of Peace Region Paleontology Research Center in British Columbia, explains that the museum was supposed to receive $128,000 annually to cover operational costs, but in 2018 it was given only $13,000. There was apparently a modernization plan in place that would have addressed the fire prevention system as well as other necessities, and it was put on hold until after Brazil's October elections. Dr. Buckley notes that we can ask how much more than 128,000 it will take to replace the infrastructure that was lost, but that the artifacts lost are priceless and irreplaceable. Once these artifacts are gone, no amount of money can bring them back. This is unfortunately not the only recent loss of a national museum to preventable tragedy. The National History Museum in New Delhi lost its entire collection to a fire in 2016, and the Butantan Institute collections used for vaccines and medical research lost significant sections of its collections in 2010. That's why today we'll be talking about archives, their importance, and the way that we do or do not preserve their collections. And hey, while we're at it, this feels like a good time to bring up the fact that our memory and heritage institutions are vital, irreplaceable, and always need funding. Harangue your local representatives today. It should be noted that our academic siblings, the Museum Studies Students of Brazil, sent out a call for pictures and videos of the museum and have received over 14,000 videos, photos, and drawings from patrons thus far. A link to the articles we've cited will be available on Facebook and SoundCloud. With November being a particularly poignant time to reflect on the importance of memory and memory institutions, let's listen to Hong Yi Gong's interview with Frank Tuff from the Métis Archival Project. Uh, it introduces what the archive is, how to use it, and the destruction of archival records and what's lost in digitization. 
I'm here with Frank Tuff, Professor of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. Frank, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? I uh, trained as a geographer. Uh, I've been in Native Studies almost all of my academic career. And I do research uh, in archives, so almost all the materials that I develop into books or articles are from the archives. And to do this, I have set up a um, lab called Métis Archival Project, uh, which is uh, designed to acquire, compile, and organize documents relating to the Métis. And I employ students in various capacities to do this. And we've been doing it since about 1999. So today we're going to talk about archival preservation and the importance of archive in general. During a discussion, you said that the convergence of libraries and archives will be like a forced marriage. So um, let's get to the basic question. What is an archive and what is its uniqueness? So an archive preserves the sort of unique records that are created in political and economic processes, and often it's state records, could it could be private papers. Archives, in a way, is part of nation building. So as European nations, uh, they always created what was called like a national library, a national atlas, a national archives. These are nation building activities. Uh, so for example, Finland was the first country in the world to create a national atlas. Canada was the second. So this reflects the ability to sort of compile information, get to know yourself better, and to make a statement to the world. We have an atlas, we have a library, we have an archive. So what's the value of archive in terms of like to researchers like you and to the general public? Well, for me, I can say I'm glad that, that all these records existed because it gave me a career and a job. Um, to the general public, I think it's very important and it's very important that archives not be the preserve of a few uh, well-connected professors, uh, nor should they be so dumbed down that it's, it's, it's um, you know, sort of a, a mass uncontrolled uh, access. And I'll give you an example. So we recently celebrated 100 years of the end of the Great War. Well, the Canadian government preserved a lot of records and there is a record called an attestation paper. And that is when a young man, generally, signed up to serve the country. And they filled out a form. Well, the Canadian government preserved them, preserved their military files. They put the attestation records online. And so this is how I got to know my grandfather, who I never met. My grandfather volunteered and served in that war. And uh, there's things on those, on those papers that even my father did not know. So that was, you know, some of this falls very generally in the area of genealogical history, and it can be very personal. And I'm only talking about three generations away, but I'd never met my grandfather, and yet this was some information I got on him. Because we have a national archive, which has been merged into a library, uh, but which some resources have been dedicated to creating access online. So this is where digitization can have a positive effect. Let's talk more about the Métis Archival Project. What exactly do you and your team do? Yes, yeah, so the Métis are one of the three Aboriginal people of Canada. They're based in uh, Western Canada. 
Um, they are strongly related to the development of the fur trade, which is unique to Canada and created unique relations with Aboriginal people. Um, sometimes people see Métis as simply some sort of um, mixed marriage uh, result, but in fact they are a people. There's, they've been four or five generations of uh, endogenous marriage, and they have a political um, organization, and they occupied certain parts of the fur trade economy. So they are a people, they are a collectivity, They've long been ignored by Canada. Uh, there was a formal recognition of their Indian title, but the compensation for that was tainted with fraud. And uh, they have, with the creation of Section 35 rights, which in which the um, existing Aboriginal rights of the Aboriginal people are uh, recognized and affirmed by Canada, they have been able to pursue a rights-based agenda by going to court and litigating on their interests. So we provide historical materials that relate to that. That's what the archival project is about. As far as I know, the MAP project actually created the Métis National Council Historical Online Database. Could you introduce that database? Yeah, so one of my approaches, unlike uh, the mainstream of Canadian history, although there's been some conversions, is to make archival records accessible to people uh, in an organized and systematic way. So archival records relating to the Métis, such as the 1901 census or Métis script applications, uh, were put online in an organized way uh, with a database interface. Uh, and this allowed Métis people and anyone to uh, access these documents and um, this would allow them to apply for membership in their provincial governments, such as the Métis Nation of Alberta. And um, they would complete family trees, and this database would allow for um, the acquisition of verifiable and objective information for them to make their claims to a connection to a Métis historical community. So the database was put up. It was funded by the Métis National Council very generously. It was built at the University of Alberta, uh, and then it got taken down by the IT people on campus, took it down uh, as a security matter that had affected all the servers on campus. And currently we are attempting to rebuild this database, and we are currently negotiating uh, with IST on campus about how we rebuild that. So it's been offline for a number of years. It had funding issues, but we are going to redevelop it and bring it back online. And so it's a matter, as always, when we're doing these sort of change agendas, there will be people who will stand in your way and there will be people who support us. But we are going to do it anyway. Um, can you talk a little bit about the destruction of records? Yes, it's, it's, uh, it's the sort of mandate of modern, uh, what's called records management people who really are out to destroy records. So I give you the example of how my grandfathers and all the others who enlisted in the First World War their attestation papers were preserved. Um, an example of the destruction of records would be the Census of Canada. So the Census of Canada were big efforts, and again, a national census reflects nation building, right? We can count our people, we know where they are, and we have some descriptions about them. So states and empires have uh, periodically gotten into counting its population. It's part of governance, whether it's good governance or bad governance. So. Uh, in Canada, as a kind of newish nation, um, 
There was quite a bit of effort was put into the census. It was very elaborate. Uh, people nowadays complain about, you know, the long form versus the short form and the intrusive nature of it. But even in the past, there was um, many, many questions asked in the census, and they were asked on different schedules. So these, and these were all done face-to-face. -face. They knocked on doors and asked people for this information, and there was uh, nine schedules. So what they did in the 1950s is they microfilmed only one schedule, and they destroyed the originals. And in the case of, say, the 1901 census, if we're talking about nine schedules, they destroyed eight schedules without any preservation. Okay, so one of the things I think it was schedule number three in 1901 that was so could have been so interesting, is they asked each household if anyone had died in the last 12 months, and then got to the cause of death. So here we had a door-to-door -door survey about mortality across the country, with an organized. We might not agree with the categories in the list of of causes of mortality because medical science is advanced, but they had collected all this information on mortality which on a house-to-household -household basis would have been a fantastic set of medical historical records. So it was collected and it was destroyed. And the other thing is the microfilming that has been done has not always been that great. Now there's been digitization of the microfilming and the MAP project has digitized bits of it. Um, we always had to use the microfilm. We purchased the microfilm because the census sometimes was organized a bit um, erratically at time to time and you had to read the whole microfilm sometimes to find a few lost pages like the rest of the pages are, are in the middle of the microfilm and the lost pages are at the end of the microfilm unless you can go through the whole microfilm making sure you got everything you don't really know now the 1921 Canadian census which is released in public and accessible online I believe through Ancestry is really not in control of the researcher so what happens then is um, they won't allow us to purchase the microfilm. So this organization of the census under Ancestry privileges the individual, the surname. We're interested in communities, being able to search by communities. Uh, having look, what would be good would be to have lookup tables that would connect the old census enumeration areas to modern communities. That's one of the things that could be done. And it's very hard to sort of figure out how do you browse through digital images. You have to sort of download everything, where it's much easier to browse and search on a physical roll of microfilm. So that's a case where it's been all or nothing, where Library and Archives Canada is tr trying to control over the 1921 census to uh, a foreign body, and researchers have not had the access that we had before in terms of purchasing the microfilm. So generally, um, how do you foresee the future of archive? What should archivists and your archival students do to cope with such situation? The early records are always uh, handwritten, cursive, what we call cursive writing. Uh, we never called it cursive writing before, we just call it writing. And young people can't read this, it's, it's like giving them a foreign language. And uh, yeah, it's more work doing that. I said that I specialize, my, my period of study was the age of the typewriter. So when states started typing up records, that's what I liked because it was more readable and you could get more type on a page. What's happened now, it's going to be much easier to write about the 19th century and the earlier 20th century than it's going to be to write about the early, the early 21st century in some respects because a lot of what the archivists call in Ottawa machine-readable records 
are really, it's not practical to have them accessible. They've been done on obsolete machines with obsolete software, and unless you print all this stuff off somehow, it's not going to be accessible. So m the vast majority of the records that are created now today on various computers uh, will not be accessible, whereas when they type things up with carbon paper or photocopied things, um, you have a hard copy of the record. So the future does not bode well. That's one thing. The technological changes actually, um, I think, make uh, insurmountable challenges to archivists in terms of how to make machine-readable records accessible to researchers and the general public. That's one point. The second point is privacy makes it very difficult now. Uh, a lot of records will be destroyed. They're only kept for seven years. Uh, so if you were trying to do a history of the University of Alberta, uh, say 50 years from now, at this point in time, you won't know very much about the people who worked here because all their records have been closed or destroyed. Or even the people who applied for jobs or the students that studied here, it would not, you'll have less data than you had uh, when you want to look at the past. So privacy and access is actually uh, a form of censorship of the primary materials of history. Thank you for joining me today, Frank. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to Hong Yi for bringing us that story. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Shout for Libraries on CJSR. Next, we're going to hear from Joel with his retrospective review of two documentaries by Terry Sanders. The first is Slow Fires on the Preservation of the Human Record from 1987, which has to do with paper preservation in libraries and archives. And Into the Future, Information in the Electronic Age from 1996, which is about digital preservation and interoperability. Imagine, if you will, the following scenario. You're tasked with writing an assignment for a class on Alberta's early provincial history. Specifically, you need to somehow find out how many schools there were in the then Northwest Territories at the time that Alberta became a province in 1905. You search around fruitlessly for a while until, in a flash of insight, you realize where you need to look early territorial annual reports held at the Alberta Legislature Library. You hurry there, find your way to the appropriate reports, sit down with them in a study carol, wet your finger to turn open the cover, and... This fragile, more than a century old document crumbles into confetti-like flakes that fall across your desk. This is a hellish imagined scenario for habitual users of primary sources and full-on nightmare material for librarians and archivists. The Library of Congress, the splendid guardian not only of history and its crucial documents, but of the most ordinary books, newspapers, letters, and diaries, the cumulative daily life of the nation, invaluable and irreplaceable. Yet even here, inside this shell of splendid masonry, millions of volumes are falling apart inside their covers and within the very fortress meant to preserve them. Released in 1987, Terry Sanders' Slow Fires on the Preservation of the Human Record served as a clarion call to the library and archiving communities to take action in addressing the film's titular Slow Fires. 
In a perhaps ironic set of circumstances, the digital copy of the film that I viewed was a transfer from an earlier generation video cassette, which led to its audio tracks, most notably the film's soundtrack by Jean-Pierre Tibi, having a warped spectral quality. A slow fire, as Robert McNeil's stately narration in the film details, is the term coined to refer to the degradation and embrittlement of a treasured, usually 19th or 20th century resource due to its paper's acidity. As Sanders tells it, early paper production from the 17th and 18th centuries was, interestingly, more durable than paper produced in the 19th century due to its stronger, more lasting linen and cotton composition. As the demand for paper increased, however, along with the spread of literacy, manufacturers began to use wood pulp and incorporated acidic chemicals such as alum into their paper. In doing so, they inadvertently lit the match of the slow fires that would burn as that paper acidified and degraded over the course of the remainder of the 19th century and throughout the 20th. William Welsh, then Deputy Librarian of Congress in 1987. A number of years ago, we knew somehow instinctively that we had a problem in preservation, but we didn't know really the extent of it. So we had a survey made of our collections and discovered, much to my horror, that 25% of our book collections of 13 million books, 25% were embrittled. That means they would, they would uh, crumble. Uh, more seriously, we discovered that 77,000 volumes a year move from a highly acidic state into that embrittled uh, state. This is a book taken from uh, our collection which shows the condition that I've described, the embrittlement. You can see what happens when you do that to it. Even viewed over 30 years on from its creation, Sanders's film remains a nuanced portrait of the library and archival professions nearing the end of the 20th century. Librarians and archivists in the film, such as then-Librarian of Congress Daniel Burstyn, New York Public Library's John Baker, and Columbia University Library's Patricia Batten are acutely aware of their respective institutions' status as preservers of the cultural record, while also simultaneously cognizant of the enormous set of logistical challenges that such preservation necessarily entails. A group of librarians at University of California, Berkeley. All over the world, libraries face the same dilemma. So little money, so little time and so many millions of books and papers slowly falling into destruction. And we will not buy it again. Can we make that hard decision? I don't think it makes much sense to say, well, this is on the shelf and it's deteriorating. Therefore, let's say that when you have limited funds, I think you have to have a more systematic approach. I think what we face is either the need to dramatically increase the amount of funding we have available to us, and perhaps even with that, to make some harder decisions about what we're going to preserve and what we're going to uh, let go the route of planned deterioration, as the Library of Congress refers to the process. Well, I'm, you know, I'm hearing all of the, uh, the needs, and I'm back to what Arthur was saying about the national or international preservation challenge of retaining the human record versus the Berkeley challenge of retaining a working library, a real library, a research library. 
I don't know where we're going to come out on that. And here again, uh, the, the uh, it seems to me we are faced with the choice that the unfortunate souls on the Titanic were faced with. The boat's going down and there aren't enough lifeboats. And, you know, we have to decide what are the women and children of our collection. How does one prioritize parts of a collection for preservation or deacidification? Which parts should be microfilmed or later digitized to ensure future accessibility and use? What if that filming or digitizing process results in the original material itself being destroyed, such as in the example case of highly acidic compiled volumes of daily newspapers detailed in the film? These questions crystallize the perennial tension in heritage institutions that exist between preservation and access. Sanders followed up Slow Fires with a sequel film of sorts entitled Into the Future on the Preservation of Knowledge in the Electronic Age in 1998. Into the Future, while making reference to archival slow fires, focuses mostly on then-new problems wrought by what would later come to be called born digital content. In interviews with Jeff Rothenberg from Rand Corporation, Peter Norton of Norton Utilities, Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, MIT sociologist of technology Sherry Turkle, and others. Jean-Pierre Tibi reprises his role as music composer for the film. The film provides a necessary counterbalance to typical 1990s hyperbolic techno-utopian web discourse by putting needed emphasis on issues that have since become central to digital preservation. Questions of common infrastructure, interoperability, and planned obsolescence, all still highly pertinent to disciplines that engage in digital preservation and curation. The incisive point is made that preservation in the digital context has to be much more intentional as Unlike physical resources, a digital resource will likely not be executable or readable in 20 or even 10 years unless concerted effort is put towards ensuring that it is. Tan Rothenberg, then of Rand Corporation. The problem with preservation is one which archivists and librarians think about because that's their business. But unfortunately, computer science as a field has not had very much interest in this problem. I'm not sure that it isn't aware of it, but it, it has a mindset that says, you know, we are, we are in the business of charging ahead into the future and, and dropping the past behind us and not carrying the baggage of old, obsolete systems. People are more interested in what's the new paradigm? How are we going to create new, more exciting hypermedia with new capabilities that have never existed? But those new capabilities, those paradigm shifts, leave old documents stranded in the past with no bridge to, to the future. Terry Sanders's two films serve as fitting companion pieces that reward tandem viewings. They show how library and archives professionals are often at the forefront of thinking through questions of futurity, of taking the long view, a view that may be out of step with contemporary culture's obsession with novelty, but one that is even more vital for its apparent gaucheness. The film's attempt to kind of reckoning with librarians and archivists' nightmare case scenarios. For slow fires, this was an overdue reckoning for a crisis already underway. 
one needing urgent attention and resources. For into the future, it was more of a preemptive gesture, hoping to amplify the need for digital preservation and interoperability in the face of exponentially rapid technological advancement. Fending off degradation and loss, both pretty spooky when you think about it. This has been Joel Bleckinger for Shout for Libraries. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode. Thank you to our guests for joining us on Shout for Libraries. You can visit our Facebook page at Shout for Libraries or visit us on Twitter at Shout, the number four, libraries. Once again, this has been Marin And Julia. And we have been your hosts for this half hour of library-centric radio. Catch us on the next episode of Shout for Libraries. Check, Check it, it out! out.